sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. Uh, Father, just simply pray uh, that you would be honoured and glorified. Father, would you um, give me your words to preach? Uh, would I be, be faithful? Uh, give me a heart um, wanting to, to see you glorified and, and honoured this morning. And I pray that you would be at work in all of our hearts, uh, helping us to be true worshippers of the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a sermon series on the Psalms. Now, this is a, a series that we've been doing once a year for the last number of years. So we're up to book four of the Psalms. Uh, so uh, Matt Bird kicked us off last week with, with Psalm 90. Now, book four of the Psalms is compiled, as Matt shared with us last week. Uh, it's compiled when the, the people are in exile. And so they're no longer in the, the promised land, but they're sort of these psalms help them to look back at how they've hardened their hearts, they haven't been faithful to God, but also help them to look with hope to how God will continue to be their people. And Psalm 95 is actually the first of six psalms through to Psalm 100 that are, are calling God's people uh, to, to worship him. Let me, let me find it in the Bible. So you can, if you just look at the, sort of the first line of many of these Psalms, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song again, for he has done marvellous things. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. These are, these are Psalms of worship. They're, they call us to joyful praise. They're designed to draw our hearts, our wills, and our minds Godward. Now, worship is, is probably not a, a common sort of thought in our society, um, in our culture, but I think we actually, there's, there's worship all over the place. In fact, I would say each of us are worship something. There's something that we're captivated by, even controlled by, that we seek to worship. And I actually think there's an illustration in Harry Potter that really helpfully sort of shows us how we, we do this. Uh, there's, a, there's something in the, the first book or, or movie uh, that's called the Mirror of Erised. Okay, the Mirror of Erised. Um, and uh, the, what's up on the screen will hopefully sort of describe what it does. Um, what, what, Harry asks, what's this professor do? And Dumbledore responds, uh, it shows us 
It's hard for me to read. Nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desires of our heart. And so you, you look into the mirror and you see the desperate, most deepest desires of your heart. Now I've got a slide of what Harry saw when, when he looked into to the mirror. Teenage boy, I guess. Um, no, actually, that's, that's not what Harry saw. Uh, he, he's an orphan. Um, his parents had died at a very young age. And he saw himself with his parents, his loving parents. And you can sort of see how that might be the deepest desire of, of his heart. Uh, Harry's so excited about this that he goes and grabs his friend Ron because he wants Ron to see his parents. But when Ron looks into the mirror... What Ron sees is himself as like a head boy of the school with a, a sporting trophy and all sorts of awards and stuff. Uh, for Ron, he's like the fifth or sixth sibling and he wants sort of recognition and approval and he sees himself sort of obtaining success to get these things. I wonder what you would see or you'd be sort of tempted to see uh, if you were to look into to such a mirror. The deep desire of your heart is going to be what we're tempted to worship, to bow down to. And it will start to drive everything in your life. It'll be where you attempt to find joy and purpose and rest. And now there's, there's many places that we can go to, but our psalm beautifully and wonderfully calls us to worship God. So not a created thing, uh, but the creator himself, the sustainer of all life and our saviour. Right, so as we go through this psalm today, we're, we're going to look at what is worship. We're going to look at why worship and finally who to worship. Now, if you're here and, and whether you're Christian or you might not be a Christian, you might be sort of investigating the, the Christian faith. I think what we go through today as we look at this idea of, of worshipping God, we'll see that no matter what our circumstances, so you might be going through tough, trying, stressful, anxious circumstances. Um, as we worship and as we truly worship God, our hearts are actually drawn away from our circumstances, from our situation, and they're drawn to our Saviour. And that completely and wonderfully changes our posture and our perspective. Right? So worship wonderfully draws us to our God. So let's go through. What is worship? Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in one of his talks that I listened to, he said, worship involves ascribing ultimate value to someone or something with all of ourselves. Right? So the thing that we worship is the thing that we're ascribing ultimate value to but it's important and the way that he goes through it is that it involves all of us right that means all of our being our emotions our mind and our will are captivated and controlled by this ultimate thing that we try to worship and we see that in our text okay so in in verse one and two uh, we're called to be captivated our emotions to be captivated by by god listen to this again i come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. 
right? The, do you see the, the, the wonderfully warm sort of emotive language? Rejoice, joy, thanksgiving. It's an exuberance that we're called to. It might bring to mind, if you're familiar with the story of, of David sort of dancing and singing before the ark of the Lord as it was brought into Jerusalem. Right? There's, uh, worship involves an emotional component. There's more than that. As we look at verse 6, we see that worship involves our, our wills, right? our wills which lead our, our actions. So it says there, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Uh, we need to be willing to humble ourselves, to, to place God above ourselves. And when we worship something, that's, that's what happens. Okay, so it involves our emotions, our will, but also our minds or our, our rational thoughts. At the end of verse 7, we're told, uh, for he is, that's not verse 7, I'll read down. Um, I got that wrong. Uh, the end of verse 7, that is verse 7, but that's the first half of it. The end of verse 7 is today, if you hear his voice. Right, today, if you hear his voice. Now, that's talking about God's word, his voice there, and we're to hear it, to listen to it. We're in, engaging our, our minds. And we need all three of these, the emotions, the will, and the minds, to really wholeheartedly worship. If we have no emotions, then it's just going to be joyless, rational service. If no will, then it's going to be ineffectual rituals. No mind, well, mindless enthusiasm. Worship involves our entire being. As Jesus himself says, we're to love with all of our heart, our mind, our strength. It involves all of us ascribing ultimate value to God. So that's the, the what of worship. Let's now look at the why worship. Right, this is our second point, why worship. See, in our psalm, after each call to worship, uh, with our emotions, our, our will and our mind, there's a reason why we would worship. Right, we see in, in verse 3, there's a reason why we would worship with our emotions, because he is worthy. See, verse 3 starts with the word for. It's a, it's a reason verse. It says, for the Lord is a great God, and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depth of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. These verses tell us that God is, is good, he is ultimate. He is the ultimate thing, the, the great king above all gods. Anything else that you could worship or be tempted to worship, anything else that we might see in the, the mirror, um, these might be good things, but they'll be created lesser things. Right? And to worship something that is not ultimate will ultimately distort our lives because that is not what we were made for. We were made to worship and love and receive the love of the Lord our God. So we worship because he is worthy, he is great. Uh, but we also worship because he is personal. Right? You see in those last verses it talks about the, the sort of whole world being held in his hands. Well, we too are in his hands, personally. For In verse 7, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. 
You're his. He cares for you. Jesus personally came. It's a beautiful description there of us being sheep of his hands. We know that Jesus is the good shepherd. But he's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He stretched out his hands because he personally loves us. And he wants us to know and to receive his love. He is a personal God. We're called to worship him with our will as one who loves us. And thirdly, why worship? Uh, and this engages our mind. We worship because otherwise we won't enter his rest. Now, it's interesting. If you read through the psalm or even as you heard Katie read through it before, you will have noticed sort of the first half sort of reminds me of the song in The, the Wedding Singer. Like first half is like sort of happy and joyful and then there's this real change of tone in this second half and there's, there's this warning. Now, the other thing that happens here is really interesting. Uh, you see at the end of verse 7 there, it's the psalmist speaking. Today, if you hear his voice, uh, but it changed to God himself giving the, the warning. Listen to this. Do, do not harden your heart, says at Meribah, as on the day of Massah. So those are places in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See the, the, the change in tone, this warning, and it's a personal warning. It's our personal God warning us uh, that through hardness of heart, through unbelief, we won't enter into his rest. Now, we think that rest comes from our circumstances. We're so often tempted to think this. So for, for you or I to, to get rest, then we need to change something about our circumstances, whether it be something as simple as sort of getting a, a time out or an escape in the moment, uh, whether, whether it be to, to take a holiday. Uh, often we, we look to our circumstances and we say, well, I'm going to need to change jobs to get a rest. Or once I've finished this uni degree or this study, then I'll have rest. Or once their kids have grown up a bit, then I will have rest. And there's, there's some aspects of, of truth to, to those things. But ultimately, our circumstances aren't going to give us the rest that our hearts desire. Our, our psalm is claiming that it's not our circumstances that need changing, but it's our hearts. And to make this point, uh, God in this psalm brings up a couple of places uh, in Israel's history where the people hardened their hearts. They didn't believe and trust God. And they didn't enter into rest. You see in those verses there in verse 8, uh, it mentions the places Meribah and Massah. Now, these, these places are, are places uh, that, that were given those names. In the Hebrew, they mean quarreling and testing. Now, we're going to have to work hard for a little while, but I want to show you how, how by bringing these up that the point has been made through unbelief or through hardening of hearts, we can never enter God's rest. So conversely, through belief and through trusting, 
is the only way that we can enter into the rest that God promises us. So now these places are first mentioned in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is after God's people have been rescued out of the land of Egypt. So they've been in slavery in Egypt. They're a great people, but they're under the, the reign of Pharaoh, who is a tough slave master. But God shows his power over, over Pharaoh and his supremacy uh, through a number of plagues, through a number of miracles. He miraculously brings out his people uh, and he rescues them in the crossing of the Red Sea. So remember, Pharaoh goes to chase them. The people cross over unharmed and the, the army of Pharaoh is wiped out. So chapter 17, God's, God's been providing food and, and water for his people, but they're grumbling and they're complaining. And they're not trusting God. And ultimately, they, they harden their hearts and that generation doesn't enter into the promised land. Uh, so there's a warning here. Uh, unbelief equals no rest. Now, when we get to the, the New Testament, the, the book of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4, it quotes Psalm 95 a, a whole bunch of times. Right? And there's lots of things that it says there, but, but if I boil it down to the point that's been making, um, even that generation who Joshua then ended up, the next generation that ended up coming into the promised land, that land, that, that people, that generation, didn't really receive true rest. And, and Spurgeon, the, the 19th century preacher, puts it better than I can. Uh, he writes, or he said, there can be no rest to an unbelieving heart. If manna and miracles could not satisfy Israel, so that's what they'd experienced in the wilderness, then neither would they have been content with the land which flowed with milk and honey. I want you to think about it rationally for a bit. I engage your minds here. Do you know that your circumstances can never give you rest? You and I might imagine that we could have so much wealth, right, that we would have so much security that we would have rest. Or we would have so much approval from others, uh, so much fame uh, that we would have rest. Right? Everything that we want. But there's examples in history where people have obtained the sort of deepest desires of their heart. And they've realised that these things do not satisfy their yearnings. Arguably the richest man proportionally that has ever lived uh, is a guy called Rockefeller. Now he was asked, uh, I think the question was how much money would make you happy and he said just one more dollar i reach beyond imagining right, but not satisfied not enjoying rest because he always wanted more when i was young arguably the most famous person in the world was madonna you know, early on in her career, uh, she, she was asked what would make you happy and she said, I won't be happy until I'm famous like God. Well, it's interesting, if you, if you ever read some stuff, Madonna's actually quite insightful if you hear interviews from her and, and whatnot. 
But you listen to her and, and she has never received that rest or that happiness, even though arguably she's been the most famous person in all the world. Our circumstances won't ultimately satisfy. Now, so many, so many of us ascribe ultimate value right, to an idol, whether it be wealth or, or fame, approval, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's having children. We ascribe ultimate value to circumstances that we believe will satisfy our deepest desires. And we worship these things. Yet even those who've arguably obtained the circumstances that they have sought don't find the rest that they're looking for. Because they can't. Not in these things. Now, is that you? Have you been searching for rest in all of these other created things? Well, listen up as we come to our third point and we look at and talk about who to worship. See, the book of Hebrews goes on to show where it is that the true rest that's described in Psalm 95 actually comes from, where it's found. And true rest is only found in our Saviour, not in our circumstances. Jesus gives real rest because he's the one whose heart is truly faithful to God. See, in the face of testing and trial, like God's people faced in Maribyrn, the, the places in the wilderness, in the face of testing, Jesus trusted and was obedient. Uh, let me put up on the, the slide Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. And this is describing Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he trusted and he believed in God's goodness, God's word, uh, his father's word, and he is without sin. Now that's so, so important because listen to what comes next. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of Jesus stretching out his hands and laying down his life, because of his obedience, because of his belief, we can enter into rest. We can with confidence draw near to God's throne by trusting in his sacrifice in our place. Loved the way that, that Ed put it before when he was talking about the sign of baptism. It's not only the washing away of sins, but it's the, the giving of Christ's righteousness uh, that we receive as we trust in him. Worship isn't something that we do to earn favour with God, to somehow sacrifice to God so that we'll be honoured. True response, this is true worship is a response to him being worthy, to him being great above all others. It's a response to him being personal, to him personally showing love and care by coming to rescue us and to lay down his life for us. But we worship because to fail to worship actually hardens our hearts. It leads to dissatisfaction and disobedience. There's a warning in this psalm against the hardening of hearts. And the antidote to that is to worship, 
to worship wholeheartedly, to come before him knowing that we need him, knowing that he loves us. I just want to come back to that example, the, the mirror of Erosid, which if, if you didn't realise is desire spelled backwards. I read the books a few times. It took me a while to pick that up. Uh, but the Dumbledore, um, he, he in the dialogue with Harry, and this hopefully will be coming up on the screen, he says, the happiest man on earth would be able to use the mirror of Erosid like a normal mirror. That is, he would look into it and see himself exactly as he is. I think that is profoundly not true. Because if we saw ourselves as we are truly, we would see all of our lack. If we're honest with ourselves, we would see the way that we've hurt others that we've been disobedient to God. I would put it to you that the happiest, most joyful man or woman actually sees themselves as our loving Heavenly Father sees us because of his son. When we see that we're loved and careful, when we see that the love with which our God loves us, then we truly will be content and have rest. Let, let me conclude with, with two things that I think this psalm is, is wonderfully calling us to. The first is that we're called here to worship God with all of ourselves, with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind. Now, when things are, are going well, that can seem pretty easy. Uh, right now, some of you will be just in a pretty sweet spot uh, where, where things are going well and it's, it's sort of easy to, to worship the Lord, uh, to see and to trust his goodness. That can be hard when our circumstances are hard, right? when there's things causing us stress and anxiety, things that, that we're worried about. Now, we live in a time, and I, I, I think from, from definitely pastoral conversations that I've had the last year or two, uh, there's just significant mental health challenges. There's anxiety and, and worries and stress and depression are rife. Right? And there's many good things we can do uh, for those challenges. Right? Um, physically healthy, all those sort of things. Um, but I'll tell you what is the best thing that we can do. And that is to worship God. Because in worshipping with all of us, we're taking our eyes off our circumstances and to our Saviour. We're putting our eyes onto the one who loves us and cares for us, who knows all of our needs. That is why we're called to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. You know, many of you would know that I, I ride my bike to and from the, the church office. Now, often as I'm riding home, we have 
So these windows at the front of the house that are opened up for all the neighbours to hear what's going on. Um, as I'm riding up, I often am hearing certain sounds coming from our house. There's all sort of a range and I sort of know what I'm going to get as I, as I ride up. And sometimes what I hear, and it's blaring loudly for the whole neighbourhood to hear, is worship music. And when I hear that, I know almost inevitably that Carly has had a really hard day. And, and her response to that, and I think it's such a wonderful and helpful and good response, is to crank the worship music. Because that just helps her in her heart go from worrying about the, the circumstances and the situation, the anxieties and all the challenges of the day and helps her to see and trust God's goodness. All right. So I know the louder the music's on, probably the harder the day has been. I'm thankful for that. I would encourage you to do likewise in different circumstances. Throw the music on loud. We've found singing songs after dinner as part of our devotion time has been such a helpful time for us. Reading psalms, praying, there's all sorts of ways that we can worship wholeheartedly. We want to do that privately and corporately. We want to do that throughout our lives, throughout our days, all of ourselves, worshipping God. The second thing I want us to, to call us to is to worship with all of us. I haven't pointed it out yet, but do you notice in that psalm, all of the language is in plural. Right? Let us come before his throne. Let us come and bow down before him. Let us sing a joyful song. Right? It's, it's spoken to God's people together. And there's something special and wonderful that happens. It's such a privilege to be able to come together, to gather together to worship God. And as we do, as we sing, as you individually sing, our voices are joined together and actually stirs all of our hearts, reminds us again together of God's goodness for us. And I would say the, the more diverse in a sense those who are worshipping God are, the better. You know, children with older people, Men and women, people from different cultures and backgrounds, different life circumstances, it can stir all of our hearts as we would wholeheartedly worship our God. So I'm going to invite us to do that right now. If the band could, could come down, I just want to read out Psalm 95 again and stir our hearts again and afresh uh, to sing a song to the Lord and to worship him. Uh, this, is, this will be our prayer. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts 
as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's sing.